Well, we're looking tonight, as I mentioned, at uh, the, uh, the, the Day of Atonement. It's also known, if you grew up in a Jewish family, as Yom Kippur, uh, it, which means the Day of Atonement. And, um, but it, before we get into what the text really is, is saying, I want to kind of share a few little snippets with you. Um, living with guilt <clears throat> is crushing. To live with guilt is crushing. It's hard to manage because it eats us up it buries us and it eats us alive. One man in the news lately is having to step down from his job because of his guilt. He's been spending money that wasn't his and he's exposed. He is guilty. He is going to lose his job and his livelihood because of it. You see, I think we too know it's what guilt is like. I mean, we've promised perhaps for the billionth time that we wouldn't do X or that we would do Y. And then what happens? The billionth and first time comes around. And we know that feeling of, of doing something that we said we would never do. By the way, how was spring break? Right? What about this? What about when we really ruin somebody's reputation? When we post something that maligns somebody's character on social media? When we say things that aren't true? Have your words ever ruined somebody? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the guilt that you carry? I talked to a highly accomplished student here at TCU not too many years ago. The test was just too hard. And the stakes for their future, absolutely too high. So when it came to that particular test, cheating was the option that he chose. He told me the guilt crushed him. Parents feel guilt too. It's not just students. It can really be anybody. You see one dad express sadness over not spending enough time with his children. He said, when you've got three children, spending time with them individually, I really like doing that because that's when they open up. But he's not able to do that. Why? Because he's the Prime Minister of England. Yes, David Cameron has said that he suffers from parent guilt because he doesn't get to spend enough time with his children. Living with guilt is hard. It crushes us. How are we to deal with it? Well, I think one of the things you need to understand first before we start talking about that is what do I mean when I talk about guilt? Because guilt can be used in two particular senses. First of all, there are the feelings of guilt, right? I mean, you get caught, you feel guilty. That's, what, that's one way that we talk about guilt. But there's also an, a type of guilt that exists outside of our feelings. What I might call an object of guilt, Think about it like this. If the law says you can't steal $500 and you steal $500, regardless if you feel guilty or not, guess what? You're objectively guilty. And the Bible wants you to see that just because you are objectively guilty, you may not feel subjectively guilty. And just because you feel subjectively guilty, you might not actually be guilty. So it takes some clarity to think through these things. The concepts are related, but they're not always the same thing. Why is this so important? Because some people say that what we need to do to get rid of our guilt, right? It's just a feeling. It's just that subjecting feeling. And what you need to do is to get over your feelings. You know who would say that? Freudian psychology would say that. Just don't deal with it. Just bury it. You need to get over it, really. You've got parent issues. And if you would finally deal with those, your guilt would go away. Well, what else? Some would say this. Some would say, hey, you know what? The standards that exist, we need to get rid of those altogether. Because see, if we get rid of the standards, then we can't feel guilty. 
But that doesn't help us either. You know why? Because if that's the case, then nothing is ever always wrong. Murder, oppression, forced sex slavery, rape, pedophilia. Hey, we might not like them. We might, be, we might find them horrible, but wrong? Oh no. No, we can't call them wrong. That's what happens if you remove the standard. Some people try to make amends where they can. Remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 17? He begins to pray to God. He says, oh God, it's a holier than thou prayer. He says, I'm so glad I'm not like that other person. I give away a tenth of my money and so on and so forth. What's he trying to do? He's trying to say, look, God, if you'll look at all the good stuff I'm doing, maybe, maybe that's, I can, that's how I can deal with my guilt. Well, I want to say this. What happens when that standard that we break is actually one of God's standards? What happens when we hurt not another human being, but when we offend God Himself, and thus, are you ready? Are guilty before Him. What do we do with that guilt? Can we do anything to fix it? You want to know? You want to know the answer to that question? Here it is. It's very sobering. You cannot do anything about your guilt before God. You can't fix it. You can't make it go away. You are stuck with it. That's the sobering reality of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16 comes to us tonight though, and it brings us hope in the midst of despair. This is the climax of the book's message. It tells of the Day of Atonement and why that day was so important way back then and what it points forward to for us today. It essentially tells us how we can have atonement, how we can be put right with God. Why do we need this? Very simply, if you know your Bibles, Romans chapter 3 says this, For all have sinned, every single one of us, from the Billy Grahams to the Mother Teresas, all the way over to the Pol Pots and to the Adolf Hitlers, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. There are no such things as good people who are morally perfect in the eyes of God. They don't exist. That is a null set. And the Scriptures tell us that. But here's the good news. God in His great love for us will not leave us in that boat. How do we know that, that peace can be had? Leviticus 16 tells us, and it shows us this, y'all, that we need the right person to do the right thing in the right way. Those are my three main points tonight. The right person doing the right thing in the right way. Let's take a look. First of all, you need the right person. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Um, if you notice there in verse 2, here's what's happening. This high priest, Aaron, was to perform a sacrifice uh, for the people. This was called the Day of Atonement, and the sacrifices that he were to offer up, only Aaron could do. Only the high priest would do that. If somebody else were to do it, you see it in verse 2. Ready? What does it say? If somebody else does it, they'll come into the sanctuary and they will die. You don't do it. But even the high priest himself had to make atonement for his own sins before he would offer up atonement for the sins for the other people. What would he do? Well, here's what he would do. Ready? He would go once a year. Once a year. He would go into the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. There was this massive curtain, a very thick and dense curtain. But once a year, after all those washings, and after putting on all the right clothes, and after making all the sacrifices, he and he alone would go behind the veil to offer up sacrifices for atonement for all of the people. 
And he, and he and he alone would do it. Now, I think we, we hear that and we're like, well, wait, that's kind of weird, Ryan. Because why do I need somebody else to go make worship for me? I mean, I'm a Christian. Don't we, we don't have to have any of that, do we? Well, before you go there, listen to me for just a minute. Imagine that you uh, were told that if you dwelt, if you came near to the presence of God, it would mean your death. Okay? Then what would you think? Think about it like this. Imagine you found out that you had a heart condition that was sure to kill you unless you had surgery. Something like quadruple bypass surgery that you needed or something like that. The doctor comes in. Well, the bad news is without surgery, you're going to die in two weeks. The good news is, is that we have a surgeon who has done thousands of these operations over his lifetime. In fact, he created the surgery itself. Imagine the audacity if you said something like this. Oh, you know what, Doc? Thanks. Uh, but that's really silly. No need to trouble the man. Listen, uh, I took ninth grade biology. I know where the heart is. I know arteries are red and veins are blue. And so I can take care of this myself. Don't really worry about it. You realize the sheer impossibility of trying to do something like that. You need the right person to do it for you precisely because you can't. To do so would mean that you would die in the doing. That's exactly the way the original audience would have heard this. They would have thought there is no way we can live in the presence of a most holy, innocent, pure, and righteous God. We'll never make it. We need the right person to make the right sacrifices for us. And that person was the high priest. Why is this so important, y'all? One of the things that the New Testament, the New Testament talks about in Hebrews chapter 7, are you ready for this? Is that Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of the priesthood. That He is the ultimate high priest. He was the better priest. He was not sinful. He didn't have to make the sacrifices every year, once a year. He had to do it only once. And when He made His sacrifice for us, He went not into the Holy of Holies in the earthly tabernacle, but the Holy of Holies in the heavenlies. And the sacrifice that He offered was perfect. He is the great high priest. I want to ask you, for you to present your work by yourself, listen to me, would mean your ultimate death. You must rely on someone else to make atonement for your sins. You are not fit for it. You do not have the credentials. And here's why. God will not accept your sacrifice, however good you think it is. Therefore, who you are looking to makes the world a difference. I'll put it very simply. This really is the crux of Christianity. Do you see Jesus as your only hope of making atonement, of making peace between you and God? You see, I think we love to make Christianity about a ton of things. We think about, well, I've got to pray so many times. I've been on so many mission trips. I drink or I don't drink. Even things like politics and sexuality, they're put forth as what are the center of Christianity. But listen, y'all, they're not. One pastor puts it like this. Somebody said to him, you know, I don't like Christianity because of what it says about homosexuality or, our other, or just sexuality in general or the way I have to care for the poor or the way that I have to spend my money. And the pastor says to him, Whoa, wait a second, you're starting with ethics. You need to start with history. Because what you're saying is, is that because you don't like those things, that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. That does not follow. You see? What do you do with Jesus? 
What do you do with Him? Look, as trite as it may sound, when you die and you stand before God Himself and He looks you in the eyes and He says, Why? Why do you come in? How do you answer that question? You see, a lot of people would say this, Well, I've tried to live a really good life and do good things and be a good person. And at the end, I just hope to kind of tip the scales a little bit on the good side over against the bad side. A guy I once worked with, he said this, you know, what's the big deal, Ryan? I've never killed anybody. So what's the problem? TCU students think this. I've gone on several Bible studies. I got back from a mission trip. Hey, I'm a good Christian. I don't sleep with my boyfriend. And so on and so forth. And listen to me very carefully. God will look at all of that. And He'll say this. Those things might be true. The problem is, you never trusted in the right person. You never looked to the great high priest. And that and that alone, you never looked to the only priest whose work I accept. The primary question for Christianity is this, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Him? And listen to me, I mean this very encouragingly. He is on offer for you tonight to look to Him, to own Him as your own. And to say, I will not rest on my own works, but trust in His. You see, you don't just need the right person, though you do. You need the right high priest, but you also need the right priest to do the right thing. What do I mean? Well, let's take a look here. You notice that there were a couple of sacrifices that were being offered that day. Day of Atonement consisted of five animals that would lose their lives. Three of them were for the people, two goats and one ram. The goats will be really important in just a moment, but I think the thing I want you to see right now is that we have to understand what this idea of atonement is about. What is it? I think it's a real easy way to think about it. You can think about it if you break that up into syllables, at one That's what we learned in seminary. It's like you can, you know, you think about you are at peace now. You are at one with God. And I think the idea that was really helpful for me is that uh, atonement involves the idea of ransom. Ransom, about a payment being made. Now, when we think of ransom, we think of Mel Gibson's movie, The Ransom. I don't know if y'all ever saw that. But here's the story. Mel Gibson's character is a guy named Tom Mullen. His son is kidnapped, uh, and he's, uh, given, Tom is given a ransom note. Pay $2 million in unmarked bills, or you'll never see your son again. Tom being savvy and being Mel Gibson in the mid-90s, he says this. He says, he goes to the national media and Tom says this, The whole world knows my son Sean Mullen was kidnapped for ransom three days ago. And this, well, this is what waits for the man that took him. This is your ransom. Two million in unmarked bills, just like you wanted it. But this is as close as you'll ever get to it. You'll never see one dollar of this money because no ransom will ever be paid for my son. Not one dime, not one penny. Instead, I'm offering this money as a reward on your head. Dead or alive, it doesn't matter. So congratulations, you've just become a $2 million lottery ticket. You can go rent the movie to find out what happens. But in this instance, right? In this instance, the ransom, y'all, is paid by the innocent party to the guilty party, the person who kidnapped. But in the Bible, when ransom is spoken about, it's the other way around. That's the way that ransom really was understood. It's the guilty party paying the innocent party to be let go. You see, when a ransom is paid, atonement between the offender and the offended is had. The one thing that needs to be noted is that it's a kindness 
on the offended party to be able to take that ransom, to let that guilt go. God does not have to. He doesn't have to let us go. He can. And he, you know what? He can, uh, whatever he demanded, he could in fact require. You see, think about it like this. Let's say you owe me 20 bucks. You come to me and you say, Ryan, I got 20 bucks. Man, all I got is 10 bucks. I said, it's fine. Just give me the 10. We'll call it a day. It was my decision to take the lesser payment. Though I could require the full. You have to understand that. And that's the way that the entirety of the Old Testament worked. Well, listen, y'all. Here's the bad news. You and me, you and me are the guilty party. Our sin has offended God. We are the guilty and He is the innocent. Because God is just. Here's the deal. He must punish that sin. So we are held captive to that just judgment. What are we to do? We need a ransom to be paid to set us free from this judgment and to take our sin away. And that is what the two goats are telling us about. You'll see one there in uh, in verses 15 and 22. One goat was taken and his blood was shed as a sacrifice. His blood was that lesser payment that God graciously received for the people's guilt for their sin. It symbolized payment. But, and this is really cool, the other goat, with the other goat, something else happened. It was called literally an escape goat. It's the goat that gets away. And what the priest would do is he would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people, the entirety of the people on that goat. And he'd probably kick his bottom or whip his butt or something, and the goat would go off into the wilderness outside the camp. And the symbolism, you can just see it. It's a way of saying that all the sins of the people have been taken away. They've been taken away. And it's the same imagery that you see in Psalm 103 where the psalmist says this, that God has taken our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. They're that far removed. They're utterly done away with. That's what is going on there. The two goats symbolized together that sin had been dealt with. And because it had, God's righteous anger against sin had been dealt with. His justice was exhausted. And now there is peace. Now there is atonement. The New Testament tells us not only that Jesus is our perfect high priest, but listen y'all, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. His death serves as a ransom that pays for our guilt. On the cross, Jesus was punished for our sin because He was the ransom. His last words, do you remember what they were? It is finished. It's done. The payment has been made. We're we're good. That's what God is saying on the cross. I love what Hebrews chapter 9 says. Look up here if you can read it. It says this, Jesus... He entered once for all into the holy places. That's what I was talking about. He's a high priest, right? He's going in behind the veil to the holy of holies. And he says, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Where do you think that imagery is coming from? Leviticus 16, ready? But by means of his own blood and thus securing an eternal redemption for sins to be atoned for. The right person had to make the right sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus made that right sacrifice on our behalf. But there is one more thing that this text assumes. It doesn't mention it explicitly, but it is something that is incredibly important. 
And without it, there's no way atonement can be made. This really is the heart of what atonement is about. In other words, we need to see that we need to see the right person making the right sacrifice, but doing so in the right way. Let's take a look about what I mean. When I say the right source up here, here's what I'm getting at. You have to see where this sacrifice comes from. The right way. In other words, God Himself had to provide the sacrifice. You say, what? Well, listen. The ancient Israelites think a little bit differently than you and me. And the way they would have thought about this was that all animals, that everything that was given for sacrifice really belonged from... from belong to God and came from Him. That's why the psalmist will say this in Psalm 50. He'll say, The cattle on a thousand hills belong to Me. They're Mine, says the Lord. In other words, sacrifice came from God Himself. For those of you that might remember the book of Genesis, you'll remember in Genesis chapter 22, God had commanded Abraham to take his son, his one and only son, Isaac, up to the mountain to sacrifice him. They were offering a burnt offering. And on their way up the mountain, little Isaac looks up at his dad and he says, Hey, Dad, you know that whole sacrifice thing you were telling me about? Um, you know, we got the wood and we got the fire. But, uh, hey, where's the, where's the ram? I mean, where... He has no idea. But do you remember what Abraham says? He says, The Lord will provide for Himself a sacrifice. The Lord will provide for Himself a sacrifice. In other words, I want you to see this. That in the same way that that the Day of Atonement could have never happened if God didn't provide an animal. Listen, the ultimate Day of Atonement could never have happened without God providing. And where did that happen? That happened on the cross. That Jesus Himself, as our better sacrifice, God Himself gave Jesus to us as a sacrifice. That's why Romans chapter 8 can say this, that how can He, He gave Him up for us all. That is what He is getting out here. To rescue His people from their sin, God would have to punish sin. But only a perfect sacrifice would do. A pure, innocent, without sin sacrifice could do this only. So God, listen, Himself must die. And He does so in Christ. Listen, I think this is huge because the same happens on the cross. When Jesus died, God gave Him up for us. And by so doing, God Himself paid the debt for you and for me. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this, Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, that is Jesus, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What in the world does propitiation mean? It simply means this. It means to turn away or to take away God's anger and wrath at sin. Jesus does this in His death. He satisfies that. Here's where I think this needs to drive us home. You cannot, y'all, be the one to bring or be the sacrifice for your son. 
God will not accept it. No matter how good you are, only Jesus can be that. It has to be the sacrifice that God Himself gives. But that is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly good news. Why? Because this. This means that in the Gospel, God gives the sacrifice that He Himself requires. That He pays what He demands. Which means what? You don't have to. Think about that. You don't have to pay. It's freely given. That's the great news. You don't have to suffer for your sins. You don't have to. Because why? Because the day of atonement, the real day of atonement has happened. He pays Himself so that we don't have to. The Bible is saying over and over again, you cannot pay for your sin. Why? Because you're not good enough. This means that what you have to do is you trust that Jesus is your sacrifice. He is the one that takes our sin from us. Listen, y'all. I want you to see this. And this is where I'm going to begin to close. Most people in American Christianity say this. They say, you know what? Here's the whole deal. I'm, a, I'm in debt. And if, my, if I go into a bank, for example, and if I have debt, let's say I have just thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. And imagine, imagine if the, um, if the bank sends me a letter and they say, Mr. Anderson, we want to let you know. Come on down to the bank. We've got some news to share for you. I sit down with them and uh, they say this. They say, hey, guess what? All that debt, all that debt has been paid for. You don't owe anything now. You owe nothing to us. And as one pastor puts it, he says, that's wonderful news, right? But guess how much money I have when I walk out of the bank? Anybody want to take a stab? Zero. I got nothing. Nothing. And what the cross of Christ does for us is this. It doesn't just pay for all our sins. He makes you and me Righteous. Righteous. And that is everything. Because that means that God now accepts us because of the righteousness of Christ. That Christ gives us His very own righteousness. Such that the acceptance that Jesus has with the Father and the Spirit, you and me now have. Because He has given us His righteousness. You can do nothing about your guilt, is what I said earlier tonight. And now do you see why I say it? You can't. You can't do anything about your guilt. But there's one who can. Jesus can. And He does everything. He does everything. When Jesus died, Matthew tells us this. He breathes His last and He dies. And then he, it's like a scene change. Cut to the temple. The temple that we've been talking about. This holy of holies. And that great curtain that the great high, the high priest would have had to go through to offer up sacrifices. Matthew says this. That the temple curtain was torn in two. Why? Because there's no more separation. Christ has done everything. And the really cool thing is, is that Matthew says the curtain was torn from the top down. What a great picture, right? This great picture of there no, no more needing to be any more difference, I mean a distance between God and man. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5 where he says this. He says that for one, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one may dare even to die. But listen to verse 8. 
But God shows his great love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we didn't have it together. While we didn't love God. While we were his enemies. He gave himself for us. On the cross, y'all, Jesus put his money where his mouth was. He didn't just tell of his love. He went all the way out, all the way down. Why? To rescue us. You see, Leviticus is telling us about Jesus. He was the right person, doing the right thing in the right way because He was God's gift to us as our true sacrifice, our great high priest. He met the demands that God Himself had. This really is what the Day of Atonement points to. Listen, this is an invitation. Take it. Believe it. Own it. See Jesus dying for you. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts and our ears that we might see these things as real. Press them deep into our heart, we pray. It is in your name. Amen.